0: you found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds each of you so very well. Hi, everyone. I truly hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you today from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Beyond Delighted to have this opportunity to introduce all of you to naturopathic physician, medical intuitive, ancestral healer, and psychic medium, Dr. Anne Charlotte Valentin, also known as Dr. Lottie, who will be speaking to us from Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Lottie, who emigrated to the United States from Sweden, has two sons, a daughter, and a gold medal award-winning book in the category of spiritual leadership, titled Med School After Menopause, The Journey of My Soul, in which she shares her two dramatic out-of-body near-death experiences, the years she spent healing her body and integrating her amazing spiritual experiences, being prompted by a spirit message to attend medical school after menopause, training at the Arthur Finley College in England to become an evidential medium founding and operating a medical clinic center for integrative medicine, and so much more. I'm looking forward to asking Lottie about what she learned during her two out-of-body near-death experiences, the spirit message she received that guided her to become a physician, and how she now actively blends spirituality with Western medicine, just for starters, for what is surely going to be an interesting, empowering and enlightening interview with a very very special woman. And one more sidebar Lottie has a chapter in her book called The Journey of Self-Love that talks about a woman's body, mis- body image that is not to be missed. Hi Lottie a warm heartfelt welcome to Grief and Rebirth podcast.
1: Oh, thank you so much I'm delighted to be here.
0: I am too, it's such a pleasure to meet you. I loved your book, I truly did. So let's start with this question. Please describe your childhood in Sweden as an only girl with three brothers in a home that was steeped in science and the career that you chose to pursue that became what you call a bury in your life experiences. Yeah, so
1: I was I was born and raised in Sweden, and I was born in 1958, so I was raised during the 60s, and my parents were actually very open-minded considering the era, and they let me be who I needed to be, so they gave me um, a lot of freedom to, um, you know, to dress the way I wanted. I wanted to have blue jeans just like my brothers, and I was... Uh, definitely a tomboy as a child. I loved riding my bicycle and and run in the woods and <laughs> and just play. I played I played more with boys as a child because I was very active and loved to run and and bike. Um, and then um, you know going to school and and being raised in that environment, um, I was really good in the science in the science classes. And the school said, "Oh, you should you know be." Uh, majoring in the science classes in high school. And in Sweden, we major in high school. And then from high school, we go straight to medical school or nursing school. So we don't do the four years of college like we do here in the United States. And they said, oh, you should be a doctor. You know, your brother that's five years older than you, he is going down that line and you should do the same. And I looked at how many girls or young women were in the science classes and compared to the other majors. And there were maybe three or four young women. And I looked at that and, you know, being 14 years old back then, I figured I would never have any friends. (laughs) And it was just more important to have boyfriends and be part of the social groups at school. Uh, And that's what I worried more about, you know, back then, which is just very funny to me now, because (laughs) I truly did not follow my heart.
0: (laughs) I was on my mind. But now when I was also pointing out to you, all those boys in medical school, you were going to meet one day. i going to meet a boy.
1: <laughs> and it's so funny because, you know, I was always around doctors. My All my parents' friends were physicians. A lot of the physicians back then married the nurse. So a lot of my parents' friends, their, their spouse was, their wife was a nurse. Right. Um, my mom got pregnant, uh, you know, it was during World War II, and she was pregnant, she gave birth to my first brother when she was 19. My father was in medical school and he was 25.
0: Now, was and your mother a nurse?
1: No. And so she ended up, she was the only girl in her high school class. Um, and that was back, you know, early 1940s during the World War II. So she dropped out um, during that time and then gave birth. And, you know, then she had another son. So those were my two first brothers. But back then, so she was the only girl. In her whole class. And so later, I was the fourth child. So when I was 11, 10 or 11, she went back to school, completed her high school, and then got an education as a hospital floor administrator. So when I was 12, my mom worked part time. So she was at home when I left her school and she was home when I got back home. So it was a perfect scenario for me as a child. So my father was a physician. My mom ended up you know, doing that. But I was always surrounded by science and by medicine. And as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a doctor. And I played doctor as a child. I had the stethoscope, did all those things. And then I was 14 and I looked at that science major and I said, can't do it. <laughs> so I I majored in languages and business in high school. And then I met an American, married an American and moved to the United States when I was 21.
0: But those those experiences, you had your first jobs and all ended up being very handy for you later on.
1: Right. So then I majored again. So then, you know, my husband had a year left at Boston University. I worked as a secretary for the biomedical engineering department at Boston University that year. And then we were supposed to go back to Sweden because I had started studying in Sweden uh, at the University of Stockholm. But then the professors in the engineering school they convinced me that I should go to Boston University. And they wanted me to become an engineer (laughs) in computer science. Oh, Oh, That logical mind, it is so (laughs) strong. So now you you, later on, you're going to understand why I had a hard time, um, you know, moving into the the spiritual uh, realms of existence. And because I came from a very hardcore science, you know, my dad didn't really believe in anything of that afterlife and he grew up going to Sunday school since he was 3 years old so he knew the bible backwards and forwards and he 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 was on the board um, at the church i was confirmed at age 14 but he never really encouraged us to go to church and he said that's a, that's something you have to decide for yourself and he never went he never went to church he was never regular he he already knew everything so uh, coming from that, but he really didn't believe that the spirit would survive death. So that was just something that, um, to him, did not exist or w- just wasn't possible.
0: Boy, has he learned a lot since uh, yes, <laughs> from you, readless recently. So I know that you have had some very dramatic near death and out-of-body experiences so would you please share your experience giving birth to your daughter during an earthquake no less which led to your first out-of-body near-death experience and the sensation that your soul had not fully returned to your body Mm -hmm. and what was your takeaway from this experience on the other side I'll be brief that this one was yeah so
1: so I, I gave birth um To my daughter and I was in the in the labor at the hospital and I was contracting, you know, two or three minutes apart, and the first earthquake hit, which was seven point four, and that's one of the times in my life when I thought I was going to die. And many times people have been in accidents or airplanes, and your life flashes before your eyes, and you're thinking, "Oh my gosh, this is it, right? I'm going to die." And so that was one of those moments, and. There were floor to ceiling windows in the labor room and everything was just rattling all those uh, instruments on the metal trays, just wow. jumping up and down and people, the ner- the midwives, the nurses, my husband, everybody was leaning over me on the birthing table to hold on. I, they would have fallen down. They were holding on and holding me down. So I wouldn't levitate off. That's how much it shook.
0: And the middle and we, of your contractions.
1: Yeah. And I'm in the middle of, you know, two to three minutes apart. And I honestly thought I was going to die. We lost the power in the hospital. And I said, we're going to be buried in the rubble because the ceiling tiles are going to start falling in. The, the windows aren't going to cave in. Right. That much shaking. And so my labor actually stopped. So that's how bad it shook. And, you know, the generators kicked on in the hospital. We had the light equivalent to a night light. And then half an hour went by and I gave birth. And then we had a 7.2 earthquake <laughs> following that, which was, you know, but now we said, okay, we've it's either going to be bigger or smaller, but we could tell it was slightly less, you know, the magnitude of each level is, you know, like 10 times 7.2 to 7.4 is a big difference, though anything over seven is a huge earth, earthquake. The reason we didn't have so much destruction was because the center, the epicenter of that earthquake was in the desert. But I gave birth in the Eastern part of Anaheim, which is in Southern California. Anybody who's been to Disneyland knows where Anaheim is. And so we were really close to the epicenter being in Eastern part of Anaheim and the hospital I was in was built on rollers. So the whole hospital was just swaying back and forth to withstand that earthquake. And maybe if it hadn't been built on rollers, it would have collapsed. So maybe that is what ultimately saved our life. And then I hemorrhaged the first time. So finally I get to hold the baby after these earthquakes and all this trauma happening and my labor stopping and starting. And as soon as they give me the baby, I just arch backwards and I just yell out. And I say, take the baby, take the baby. And I was just having these excruciating uh, pains. And then there was, you know, this mountain of blood clots coming out and the midwives working on me and putting me on Pitocin IV drip to contract the uterus. And we still, of course, had no electricity. So this is all happening with, you know, with a was night so light. Frightened.
0: Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> and so so after so then I was stayed an extra day in the hospital and they sent me home And then in 10 days later, I started hemorrhaging and there were blood clots, the size of a baby's head. So I go back to the ER and I tell them what happened. They keep me for observation. They say, well, nothing much is going on right now. So we're going to send you back home. It could have been a second lining. And this is 1992. So, you know, no ultrasound, no blood work, nothing. So they send me home and then I hemorrhage again the next evening, which was a Thursday evening. We call the hospital and it's late at night. It's probably like 9.30 at night. So my husband's on the phone. My parents are visiting from Sweden to help with the kids. And I say, I yelled to my husband. I said, the bleeding stopped. I'm not going back. They're not going to do anything. So they decide I should see the doctor in Huntington Beach the next morning, because that's where we were living at the time in in Southern California. So the next morning I see the doctor. He does the same thing, the manual inspection. Well, not much bleeding is going on right now. And now I've hemorrhaged twice already. So he sends me on my way. And then um, that later that day, because now it's Friday, so it's probably around four or five in the afternoon, I hemorrhage again, another huge blood clot. So we look at each other. We say, okay, well, we're going to have to go back. This is the third time now. I mean, it's a lot of blood. So we go back to the ER and uh, they keep me for observation. They come in, they do a manual observation. They say, well, not much bleeding is going on right now. could have been, you know. Another second lining coming out. They leave me in the room, close the door and walk away. And then I'm lying there. And then finally, I'm watching, start- so watching
0: your baby. So
1: br- yeah, so we brought the baby. So my dad and my husband is in a waiting room with the baby that is now about 10, uh, to actually 12 days, 12 days old, and
0: she wants to drink some milk, I'm sure,
1: right, because we, you know, we thought, well, they're just going to give me some medication or, you know, do something and then fix me and send me on my way. So we, you know, we brought the baby, and we didn't have any bottles or, you know, formula or anything. And my mom was home with my six year old and three year old, my two boys. And so here I am, and I start bleeding again, And as I'm starting to bleed, I'm the only thing I that's going through my mind is finally, I'm starting to bleed. They're going to figure out something is wrong with me. So I'm just, you know, bleeding. I'm lying in like a pool of blood on this table. And the spirit world, I'm sure, sent this nurse to check on me. So she opens the door and her jaw just drops. And she's like, oh, you know, as she sees all the blood and she yeah i can hear the call on the loudspeaker you know obgyn stat to the er obgyn stat to the er and all i'm still thinking is wow finally they finally figured out something is wrong with me so here comes this you know middle aged gentleman jogging into the room and i'm 34 uh looking like the picture of health because I'm, I'm, in, I'm healthy. We live in Southern California. I'm tan. It's in the middle of the summer, right? So I don't look sick. So very deceiving when you're a medical doctor, right? People often look well, but you can't tell what's going on inside by looking at the surface until it's too late sometimes, right? So he comes in, he does another manual inspection. He's got his probably resident physician in tow, this younger doctor, And as they're doing the manual inspection, another huge blood clot comes out, the size of a baby's head. So now they really, now we really understood what was going on. And he had already asked me, he said, how much have you been bleeding? And I said, well, Wednesday, hemorrhage Wednesday, hemorrhage Thursday, hemorrhaged again earlier today, and I'm hemorrhaged again. So this was the the fifth time in total that I was hemorrhaging. And so at this point, I try to sit up and tell him, I don't feel too good. And he knew it because he knew how much I had been bleeding. He knew exactly what was going on. So he just pushed me back on the table, tilted it backwards. My head is going down. My feet are going up. And I can hear the room filling with people. And as they're trying to place the IV, so they hadn't even placed an IV yet. You know, now you get an IV many times just going to the ER because they want to make sure they have access to your veins if you go into shock or start collapsing. Because once you go into shock, your veins collapse. And it's very difficult to get access to the vein with a, with a needle because the, the veins are kind of shrinking down. So they had a really hard time placing the IV. So I got the nurse on my left trying to place the IV. I got the nurse on my right quoting my blood pressure. And, um, you know, I'm lying on the table thinking what's taking them so long. And I have this feeling of um, having jumped out of an airplane and it's just free fall to the ground. I'm just flying through the air. And as the nurse on my right yells out my blood pressure and she says, 50 over 15, hurry. And it was shortly after that, that I knew that I was dying, which was very different from the experience I had when giving birth, when I thought I was going to die. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is it. I'm going to die. We're never going to make it. Oh, my poor boys. They're going to grow up without a mom and dad. We're going to be buried in this rubble. This was very different. Because I knew I was dying. So here I am on this table. Feeling like I am fall- have fallen out of an airplane. I'm just free falling. And I know I'm dying. And I can feel my soul is trying to leave. And I'm holding it. What did
0: off. that feel like? You felt the soul was trying I, to leave. From what location? From where in your body? Yes. Like your moving north? out. It, it, I had the feeling of being.
1: There was something that was separating from my physical body so there was a separation that was happening and so to me on the table I'm holding on I'm just kind of how do you describe this holding on sucking on to that soul you can't leave or stay in the body hold you're holding on your personality's holding on <laughs> but your soul saying hey I'm out of here <laughs> and you're just kind of like holding on you, you can feel that separation and I was a complete atheist so I didn't believe in any of this right So here I am and the thing, the separation of your soul happens so quickly, but I'm lying on this table and I can feel this separation taking place. What do I do? The atheist that I was, I pray to God to save my life (laughs) because there's nothing left, right? There is nothing left. There is your only hope that something is out there that is going to try to help you. And within a split second, and that happens so quickly, you're inside your body, but then the next second I'm outside. But as soon as I'm outside my body, you know, the first thing that that occurs to me is, wait, how can this be? How can I be outside my body and still be me? So, you know, for for somebody who's a complete atheist and scientist, is this um you know this really turns your uh perception of who you are upside down <laughs> right so here i am and but there is a, this knowing that i can access all time there is no time in that others realm so you can access past present and future all at the same time because there is no time but there is also this feeling of unconditional love the peace and um that there is something greater and and knowing that I belong to my body down there, just like I belong to the house I live in. I belong to the car I drive, not really belong, but that's your car. That's your house. That's where you live. And that was the feeling being outside of my body was that I live down there in that body. That's my home here on earth. And then I just step out and I'm still me. I'm still the same person. I'm still the same soul. I'm everything about me was still the same except there was no time and this unconditional love and with that I got you know sucked back into my body
0: they were saving and- you. they were working they were frantic down there <laughs> <laughs> they really were so I know we're going to talk about
1: my second D which is very different but I kind of joke about how I had to have a second NDE because the first, I didn't get the full effect. They were too efficient, it too quickly. so I
0: didn't get the message. I didn't get the whole message. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about your second NDE. That was, if we didn't have enough drama with number one, let's go for number two. So um, you'd been an atheist, you didn't believe in life after death. And now you have a second near death experience which really transformed your perceptions about the afterlife and spirituality. So let it rip. That Lottie, tell yeah. us what happened with that one. Yeah. So then, so
1: we can go into that, all the after effects that happened. We're going to talk about that too, and electricity interference and, yeah. and clairvoyance and all these things that started to come through. But then, what happened in a nutshell is that I got really sick after this. So it took me six months of, I, I barely have any memories for the first three months because my, parents changed their ticket back to Europe twice. And then my mother-in-law came from Florida and to help with the kids. And it was, my daughter was born at the end of June and my memories kind of start in September. So I'm told that I just slept that whole time. I didn't have any blood. Um, The first thing that that physician said in the ER, he said, I have to give you blood because you've lost so much blood. And I look at him and I say, if you don't have to give me blood, don't give me blood because this was 1992 and it was when the AIDS epidemic started. They had no way of checking the blood for AIDS. And a lot of people that received blood transfusions back then, then ended, you know, six years later, now they have AIDS. So he said, we'll see what we can do. You're not going to feel too good, but we'll see how quickly you make blood. Otherwise, you're, know, you're a healthy young person. So they, I stayed in the hospital for two days and they, um, They said, you're making blood quickly, but you're not going to feel too good. So then it took like three months before I could even sit up. And then it took another three months. It was about a week before Christmas that I finally left the house with three children. I went to the store to get a gallon of milk and ice cream for the kids with three kids in tow. And that I totally wiped me out. (laughs) Yeah, I needed to rest the whole day.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: So then we all got sick and we all got the flu and we had to go to a walk-in clinic because my husband was between... his company got bought and he we were on the wait to get insurance. So this whole year, when I'm the sickest I've ever been in my whole life, we have no medical insurance because we couldn't afford paying cobra. We were in our early 30s and we had three kids, a big family. The cobra was you know back then in 1992 six or seven hundred dollars. I mean who could that was almost like your rent. So we said, oh, let's just wait three months and you know I'll be fine, I'm healing. So anyway, so this goes on. You have on an
0: amazing and- disposition. Other people would be <laughs> screaming and going crazy. I mean, it was like your acceptance was very of, of what was going on was very impressive.
1: <laughs> so we all get pneumonia. We go to a walk-in clinic. Oh Everybody gets gosh. antibiotics. Everybody gets better except for me. And after eight days on antibiotics, I go back. And the these physicians said, why are you back? You're, you're even sicker now than you were eight days ago. So they do a blood, they draw some blood and they come back in the room and they look at me and they say, do you have leukemia or AIDS? Because you have no immune system. Oh my God. And I told them, I said, well, the good news is I did not get a blood transfusion. So it wouldn't be AIDS. And uh, what they said, you have no immune system. That's why you're so sick. And they said, you had to go to the ER because you literally can die because you have, you know, everything is so low, all your blood values. And I said, well, we don't have any medical insurance. So if I do that, you know, I can't pay the bill and then I'm going to have a pre-existing condition when we get our medical insurance. So anyway, I managed, managed to get better. They called me the next day and said, you know, are you, if you're not better, you have to go to the ER. I don't care if you have insurance or not. And I said, I'm getting better. So it was just inching, uh, you know, my way back to health. A couple of months went by and I started bruising. So something that I bumped into the baby's changing table and something that would give you a bruise, like the size of a nickel or a dime, um, gave me a bruise that spanned my entire hip area. It was just purple and red. And then I got pneumonia again. And now it's May in Huntington Beach. So, you know, I don't have an immune system and I have low platelets because I'm bruising just by the touch. And so the the doctor you said- You life of been a
0: delight for your family.
1: Oh my goodness. <laughs> You have to go to the ER. You have to go to the ER right now. Wow. You have to run lab work. And I said, I am a month and a half away from getting medical insurance. We were going to get insurance July 1st. And this was, you know, around May 15th. So he gave me all the lab work, like a good physician that he was. And I basically just ripped him up. And now thinking back now that I know about it, having gone through medical school myself, I'm just like, thank you spirit world for keeping me alive. <laughs> Cause that was apparently my journey. But you know, if, That was a serious condition that I had. So what I know now and what my physician told me before I went to medical school is most likely what I had is something called a plastic anemia, and that is a suppression of the bone marrow. So you're not making enough white blood cells, enough red blood cells, or enough platelets. So that's why you have the bruising, you have poor immune system, and you're exhausted because you don't have enough red blood cells to carry your oxygen. So that's what I ended up having. And so that took like a good six years to come out of that. Because I didn't get medical uh treatment for it, even though later we got insurance. But then now I'm two or three years out wow, and mommy. I can see I'm, I'm healing.
0: I tip my hat to you. Wow.
1: <laughs> it wow. was a journey. So I can't even stand up to make food for my for my kids. I have a stool in the kitchen. I have to sit by the stove in order to make pancakes for the kids, because I will literally pass out if I stand up that long. Uh, if i put my knee on the floor to tie my children's shoes cuz you know my daughter was only 2 i would get a bruise that covered my entire knee my my whole kneecap just by the touch of the knee on the floor so that should means that you have very few platelets right so anyway so i'm in this i'm in this um healing journey and I have this feeling ever since I had that first near-death experience that my soul had not merged back. So I always call it the merging problem. Even
0: though you were <laughs> such a disbeliever, a non-believer, you knew that something was wow, right? And so, and
1: it was my mother-in-law that that said, I said, you know, this weird thing happened, and it, I had this feeling of leaving my body. And she said, she said, you had what's called a near-death experience, and um, she brought me the book uh, by. Raymond Moody, uh, Life After Life. And that was my introduction. So I had started to understand what had happened because I thought I was going crazy. Maybe it is some kind of hallucination of the brain that happens because I was in so scientific, right? Trying to make sense out of it scientifically. So here I am in this healing journey and I'm sick and I'm struggling to keep my soul inside. So part of that I feel like it's a merging problem. The soul did not like merge all the way back. And part of it might have been that I was so sick that I always felt like I was going to pass out. But that feeling, it's not just the feeling I'm dizzy, I'm going to pass out. It was a feeling of the soul keeping to wanting to leave. So I would, you know, wake up in the middle of the night, my head would be pounding because not enough blood in my head. And I would take my head off the pillow, pull my legs up. This was just my normal existence of this healing journey. Well, about two years, you know, into this healing journey, I, you know, same thing happens. I wake up, my head is pounding. I put my head on the, on the um, sheet, on the mattress, pull my legs up, trying to get my blood back. But the same thing as in the ER, one second you're inside, the next second you're outside. And so it's just my, you just get pulled out because, and this is why I say, they didn't get the full effect the first time so i had to have a second experience and for a long time it really bothered me this experience because was it a near-death experience because i was sick i couldn't prove it i wasn't in the er struggling for my life i didn't have a whole team of, of medical professionals trying to save me or was it a spiritually transformative experience and i struggled with that for years because i'm so scientific how do you explain this phenomenon right and now i mean so finally i came to terms with that after many many years and it's not the experience itself it is how what happens to the soul what happens to you as a human being how do you change from the experience that you had you know but we we uh, we get we fascinated do
0: transform yes we do right
1: we get fascinated hearing about the experience too. Right. So I get I get pulled out of my body and this is very so different. So now you're in
0: bed, it's at night, your husband's yes, it's in you the middle of the you're night going, and your soul's going for a trip.
1: Yep. I'm just like, this is it, we're leaving. So I just get pulled out of my body. But this time I just have this feeling of tumbling through space, tumbling through darkness. And I get to this place that I call the mid station because it's this feeling that, There are floors above me and there are floors below me. Like you get going to a skyscraper, you push the 50th floor and a a skyscraper with 100 floors and you get off on the 50th floor. You know, there are floors above you and below you, even though you're not on those floors. It was that feeling. So I get to this. So I call it the mid station. I also call it the bouncing station because they sent me back. So I get there and I hear the most beautiful music that you can imagine. It's not of this earth plane, it is more beautiful than you can imagine. And I look around in my, I don't have a body, I just have like a soul. And I see a log cabin. And I just think it's funny what we see. And because I see log cabins. (laughs) So I look inside and I say, you know, maybe the music is coming from this. So I look inside, it's empty. So then I look to the left. There is the exact same log cabin that's on the right, just a mirror image. And I look inside, but it's empty. But then I become aware of this growing light behind me. So it's almost like standing in a spotlight, at a, like a car dealership, that is just the spotlight, this bright, bright white light that's just growing behind me. And so I turn around and I become enveloped in this white light. But in this white light, there is an outline of angels and wow. the music is coming from the angel. Oh, angels.
0: my God. And what do they look like to you at that moment?
1: It was, it was an outline. So it was just these very, very large outlines of like angels. You could see the, the wings. I knew it was angels, but I couldn't. You know, they don't have facial features. It was just an outline in the white light. So there is a white outline of angels in the white light. But I don't believe in angels. I'm still struggling with putting my first near-death experience (laughs) right (laughs) into perspective. This is like,
0: surprise! Surprise, surprise, (laughs) here we go. So,
1: But there is this knowing, this white light is the source. It is what we come from. We carry this light within us. We come from this white light. We return to this loving white light when we leave this earth plane. And... As I'm standing in this in this light and listening to this most beautiful music, there's two uh, spirit guides that are one is to my right and one is diagonally to the left in front of me. And the one on my right communicates with the other spirit guide and he says, what is she doing here? She can't be here. And I'm like, wait a second. (laughs) How can this be? How can I be outside my body and still be me? Because this is the second time now. Why, you know, how, why is this keep happening?
0: And they're talking about me over here. What is this? Right.
1: You're right. And so the spirit guide on my left says, well, if I told you, you wouldn't remember, but you will remember this. And then it's just like images just sort of appear. It's almost like you're in a movie theater and then they turn the movie on. It's all black and all of a sudden the screen is there. But it is as if I'm standing on the moon and looking down on Earth. But around the earth, there is what I called at the time, because it's 1994, the silvery glittery fishnet, because it's this diamond shaped net. But back then, we didn't have Google, we didn't have internet search engines. So there was no way of looking any of this kind of information up, or I had never come across any information like this. So I see this silvery glittery fishnet. And he says, everything on earth is connected to each other. And everything on Earth is connected up to this fishnet, and I called it the fishnet because growing up in in Sweden, we spent the summers in the archipelago, which is you know over 20, 25,000 islands. And I would row the boat for my grandmother as she laid nets in the ocean. And when she pulled those nets up early in the morning, those water droplets on that fishnet would sort of glitter and shimmer in the sunlight. So to me, it looked like a fishnet around the earth.
0: Or someone else might say you were looking at the original web. Right. <laughs> right? The, the, the nexus wall. That's amazing.
1: So, and, and with that, I got sent back. But that is what really activated my life path. It and is all about that.
0: Wow. And you also had psychic abilities heightened, right? So suddenly for yeah. someone who didn't believe in anything, what were you able to do now?
1: Yeah, so then there was this, you know, constant progression that started after my first NDE. It started the next day in the hospital. Um, I'm lying in the hospital bed after my first NDE, and I'm petrified of what had happened. I'm scared to death of the fact that I had left my body. I figured if I tell anyone, they're going to lock me up in the mental ward. So I didn't dare telling anyone. And in the corner, uh, the left corner of my ceiling, I can hear my sister-in-law who had passed away Uh, about 10 days earlier of lung cancer, and she was in her 40s. And I can hear her say, everything is going to be okay. So now I was outside my body the day before. And now I think I can hear my sister-in-law. I mean, it it was actually quite scary to, I didn't understand what was going on. But that just opened up the channel that for me later to become a medium and work with the spirit world. But it started that next day. Yeah wow but then there are many stories you know i could tell stories too but so, but. You,
0: so so this one was an initial clairaudience mm-hmm. and then i guess eventually others like clairvoyance and clairsentience started to kick in so it sounds like you always had clairsentience and you didn't really know it
1: i think it was always there so you know studying at arthur family college and studying with famous shamans they tell me like it was always there i just didn't know and it was always suppressed but and so that's why I feel that the near-death experience has really activated my life path. So I started, you know, seeing things before they would happen. Uh, saw the scratch on the on the van door. Where we were going to be in an accident.
0: Oh my gosh, that's an amazing story. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So I woke up. So my kids are now, maybe around ten. My younger ones are around ten or twelve. So it's been about ten years of this. And, you know, this the constant um, hearing, hearing the spirit world or uh, being shown images of what's going to happen or knowing things about people before I'm told that. And I would start writing things down because in the beginning, I thought it's just a, it's just a deja vu. It's just, um, it's a coincidence. It can't be. And so after now it's been 10 years of this, so now I'm starting to get it. I'm a slow learner that way. <laughs> I, I need a lot of confirmations that this is really what's going on. Will you, are you going to accept it sometime soon? So, you know, it goes on forever for, for many, many years. Now it's 10 years into it. I wake up one morning and I get three images. The first image is I see a black scratch on the van door of our car. And then the second image, I see my, two of my kids in the car. My son, that's about 12 in the front seat. My daughter's in the back seat. And the third image, I'm leaving a note on the windshield of a black sedan car. Wow. So I tell my kids about this, this vision that I had. I said, you guys are in the car. We're going to be in an accident. I don't know what where it is. So I was driving my kids to San Francisco every day because they were um, at the San Francisco Ballet School and they trained six days a week. And so every day we'd take you know the Bay Bridge from you know, East, uh, East Bay into the city. And we figured out that there was this one intersection. When you get off the bridge, you go down to the surface streets and you get to the light. And when you turn left at that light, you have oncoming traffic. So me turning left would expose the right side of my car for a possible accident. So we figured that is the only time that the right-hand side of the car is exposed. So every day we drive to the city, my kid's nose is up against the windshield, like looking, mom, the car is, coast that, is that, clear. That, that- <laughs> cuz they're they're nervous too like we're going to be still a skeptic but they believe <laughs> right right exactly they know mom's not wrong <laughs> right so we we do this for 10 days and i kept saying you know why am i leaving a note on the windshield where is the driver of that car but there was no other images saying you know police cars or ambulances but you know why would i leave the note so then we're in walnut creek we're coming out of the bookstore in in east bay san francisco And it's a really crowded parking lot. There's a big truck in the way that's offloading all these boxes. And I'm trying to make a right-hand turn onto the little tiny surface street. And as I'm making a right turn, the right-hand side of my car scrapes the black sedan car that's parked (laughs) right at the end of that driveway. How did they know? (laughs) At this point, I mean, I stopped the car. I got out. I walked around the car. I looked at the scratch. And I just started laughing. I just like looked up at so the amazing. sky and I just laughed. And I know all these people were just looking at me. They must have thought I was a complete nutcase. Here's this woman laughing. And then, of course, I left the, the note on the black sedan car on the windshield. And the kids were so relieved. It's like, finally relieved it's over. you
0: thought it could have been so much worse. <laughs> That's amazing. What a story. I guess that is called clear cognizance, I guess, because you had you had that knowing um, in advance. Right? right. So
1: it's like a clear. So a lot of the information comes clairvoyantly to me. So I see images. And even when I work with the spirit world, I see images. Uh, they're showing me the images typically um, of what's going on. Sometimes I'll feel it. Clairsentient. I'll feel uh, the issue in their body. If I uh, there are times when I've had um, people passing away from breast cancer, I'll feel it. it I feel the tension in my breast. So I say, I believe that your spouse passed away from breast cancer. Is that correct? And so I can sometimes I feel it. And sometimes I'd hear it, but I'd say "Mm, probably 80 or 90% of the information I get is uh, clairvoyant. So I see images.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. Now you got messages that you were to go to med school. Mm -hmm. You would combine Eastern and Western modalities and write three books. So tell us about that and your reaction to this information and how did this information come to you?
1: So it was 2004 and I was in my living room and I was thinking, I should start thinking about going back to the, the workforce and I've been home all these years. And I had, you know, called my, my friend and said, you know, finally healed. It's finally, you know, it was 12 years later, it was like right. all of a sudden, that's it. I'm healed. I I'm ready to embark on, take on the world. And so I was on the internet, I was looking for different things. And I found this amazing school and it said naturopathic medicine. And you study not just Western medicine and pharmaceuticals and all the traditional um, Western medical treatments, but you also study homeopathy, acupuncture, uh, nutrition, uh, herbal medicines, botanical medicine. And then I realized it was a real medical school. And so I was hoping to find something I could study online. I was still you know taking my kids, picking them up from the subway system. They were taking Bart into the city, San Francisco uh, because my daughter still was not 16 yet, so she didn't have a license yet. So they were still you know, somewhat dependent on me. So I was hoping to find something like that. So then I just closed the computer. I walked away, walked to the kitchen. And I said, well, I'll just look again tomorrow. There is, I can't go to med school. I'm in my 40s now. And that's a lot of work. I got to do all the prereq classes and chemistry, physics and all that. And then even if I did that, who's going to accept somebody that's in her late 40s to med school? So I walked in my kitchen. And as I'm walking to the kitchen, I'm, I become aware of a spirit guide coming in wow and at that time i couldn't i didn't often you know see the spirit world it was more uh just hearing them in the beginning Mm -hmm. and he told me he gave me three messages and he said you have uh you have to go to medical school and become a physician and you have to combine east and west which what i looked at is kind of the perfect um combination naturopathic medicine is a combination of east and western medicine and also old and new ways of, of looking at things and healing and um and he said you are you are to bring messages to people messages of healing to people and i was like what messages What is does that know who
0: is who is telling you all of this how is the, this, the spirit this it's like a yep. th- it's coming in as a thought of what you're supposed
1: to do. Yeah. Yeah. I said that, that connection. Somebody is giving you the information. You know, it's not coming from your mind. It's right. coming from Which somewhere. Which
0: is what happened to me too. It's like yep. sort of it's a not downward. yours. Yeah.
1: And you're, you're completely aware that it's not your thought. It's coming. Somebody's telling you this, but you can't see them. And I had to combine East and West and I had to bring messages to people. And I was to, I had to be a naturopathic doctor and uh, I had to write three, two books, no weight three and that two no wait three, I have received that message from two mediums in the United States that didn't know anything about me and two of my teachers at Arthur Fin the College that also did not know anything about uh, these previous messages. but it's always the same message. I have your mother with me and she says you are to write two books. no wait three. and the message is exactly the same like the original message I got every single time.
0: You're giving a validation each time. Yeah. Oh, I see. Them. I
1: told you I'm a slow learner. I need a lot of confirmation. A
0: lot of reinforcement. So you ended up going to medical school 54 years old, which yep. is amazing. And so what was that like for you? And what influenced you to go to the Arthur Finley College to develop your a gift for mediumship? It's not everyone who becomes a medical doctor and a medium. Right? <laughs> so,
1: so the med school, uh, first of all, there, it's never too late to transform your life. That's what I want to say to all the listeners out there that are thinking that, you know, I'm too old for this. You're not too old. There are so many benefits from being that older student. First of all, I needed a lot less sleep because I was 54. If I had done this journey when I was in my late 20s, I don't know if I would have made it because I, I just required more sleep then. I also didn't have all my life experiences to draw on while I was learning the new material. And, you know, whether you are in your twenties or thirties or you're 54, I think everybody goes through the same shock because everybody's struggling that first semester to, um, to pick up the pace, because it's not the material that is hard, it's the pace that you have to learn the material that's hard. You know, those 200 PowerPoint slides every morning, the lecture from eight to 12, you know, the whole first two years is always that four hour lecture. And then you get classes in the afternoon, and sometimes until nine o'clock at night. Yeah. And then when are you supposed to review the 200 slides that was and part eat, of the main lecture, and
0: eat and sleep, and right, all and things. eat and sleep. And
1: then, you know, after a week, now it's a 1000 PowerPoint slides. And then the teacher says, we're gonna have a quiz with 10 questions. And you're thinking out of a thousand PowerPoint slides? Yeah, so that's the information. It's just a tremendous amount of information and that's what's hard. That's what's hard to get used to in the beginning. It's that you hear something once you have to retain it. And in the beginning, I think, you know, your your brain cells double that first semester. So uh, anybody who is thinking of making a career change, just, you know, baby steps in the right, you know, and you once you make the, the steps to change, everything will start to fall into place. But then the Arthur Finley, that came afterward. And that was as soon as I graduated, I I graduated. It must have been
0: amazing when you graduated. It must have been such a cause for celebration (laughs) for everyone, right? now you've graduated, you're ready to go to med school. And all of a sudden, whoops, we got another detour coming up. Yeah.
1: So I graduated in June of 2016. And then we take, you know, there's two boards you take in med school, you take the science boards after the first two years, and then you take the clinical boards after your second two years. So we graduate in June, and then you got about, you know, six weeks or so to um, review all the material from the past two years, all those thousands of PowerPoint slides, you have six weeks to go through all of that. And then you're taking the boards, which literally took two or three days of testing, uh, taking the boards. And then it takes, so that was in early August, and then it takes until the first week of October until you get the results if you pass your boards. So you're just kind of working under, uh, you know, in a clinic and helping out with things that you can help out with uh, while you're waiting for that license to come through. And as I'm doing this, I started studying craniosacral therapy. Because I said, well, I got to do do something. So I could use this time while I'm waiting for my license to to learn this whole other modality. So I meet this woman. uh, I go to San Francisco. I'm working here in Phoenix. I go to San Francisco for this seminar. And I meet this woman who says, I just moved to uh, Phoenix, to Scottsdale. And we never got to work with each other at the seminar. So I said, well, you know, I'm um, going to be in your area in like two weeks for a seminar. So let's have dinner. So I met her for dinner and she said, well, um, I'm a medium and I trained at Arthur Finlay College and <laughs> I have I have somebody with me from the spirit world um, that would like to give you a message. Are you open to receive messages? So here I am. And this is in 2016, even though I have gone through all this, I went to medical school based on the information from the spirit world. I am still a skeptic because that's I am so scientific And if you can't prove it, probably isn't true, right? So I'm kind of laughing at inside saying, there is no way this woman is going to know anything about me or my life. This like, there is no way. So I'm just kind of like laughing and saying, sure, I'm open for messages. And then, of course, it became very apparent that it was my mother and she started telling me about how I rode the boat for my grandmother and laying nets in the ocean and all these things that it would have been impossible to even guess. Right. Very accurate information. And then she says, your mother says you have to go to Arthur Findlay College. And I start laughing and I said, I can't go to Arthur Vindic College. I just graduated. I'm waiting for my license. You know, in two or three weeks, I'm going to find out if I even pass the boards. I got to make money. I'm, I'm in a residency now. I can't just go to Arthur Vindic College. And it, she keeps telling me, your mom keeps telling me, you have to go to Arthur the College. So after the third time or fourth time, I finally said, OK, fine, I will make it happen. I will go to Arthur Finley College because he was just one evidential thing after another. And she was now talking you're in about
0: California, yeah. right? And Arthur I'm... Finley College, you're in Arizona Arizona at the time. And mm-hmm. Arthur Finley College is in England. Yes. So now so, they're <laughs> telling you from Sweden to California to, to Arizona. And now they're saying, go take a little trip to England to complete mm-hmm. your education, but it's quite yeah. a different education. So <laughs> no, no, Of course, six months later. Here I am,
1: England, Arthur Finley College, my first trip. And and then the rest is history. And, how long um,
0: How long were you at the Arthur Finley College? Line? So I was
1: there uh, a week at a time. So I've been there five or six times. Now. Oh, so you would
0: go for a week, then go home, and then you would come yeah. back and take different classes. Mm-hmm. So that leads me to ask you to please tell us about medical mediumship because mm-hmm. you combined your two experiences to yeah. become the unique force that you are. So... Yes, and it's very <laughs> interesting. And I would
1: get I, my teachers would tell me that, or to find the Finder college that you're probably going to get the, the medical reason many times why they passed away. But then I did that in the beginning, and I would know exactly what they passed away from. And I think that's how it started. It's because, again, I needed a lot of um, assurance that I was doing the right thing and confirmation on uh, my work. And so that's how it started. They came through and they would tell me how they passed but then that what happened later is i would start getting messages like a patient would walk in a new patient i would know absolutely nothing about them and I, the spirit world would say they have this condition and i would say do you mean they have this condition <laughs> right <laughs> so i mean there's some uh, incredible stories of of people that uh, you would have thought that they, there was nothing wrong with them and then they ended up having cancer and it was only because the spirit world said, you have to do an x-ray. You have to do this. Um, Most of the time that, person, you know, you, that would have been dismissed as, you know, that's just allergies. Person is not even coughing. I'm listening to the lungs. I can't even hear anything. And still the x-ray showed that there was uh, spots in the lungs.
0: How wonderful it would have been for you if you had done the examination on you in the face. <laughs> Cause you would have been told, no, no, no. She's, she, she looks like she's not yeah. bleeding, but trust us, you know, she's not. So you were also told to write a book, mm-hmm. right? And about the journey of your soul, no less. Yeah. And with its focus on how we can change our lives, especially the life, parts of our lives we do not like. Mm-hmm. And so would you like to share a few of the important lessons and messages that you impart to your readers in your enlightening book, Medical School, Med School After Menopause, The Jersey, Journey of My Soul, which I have to say, I really enjoyed. I really could not put it down. It's fascinating body really great. Oh, so thank you. Tell us about your book and, um, you know, and share a few of the important things you'd like people mm-hmm. to glean. But, you know, okay. without them having to, we want them to read the book. So, you
1: know. Right. You're right. So, so I wrote the book. So again, the spirit world told me I had to write the book, right? That's one of the messages was that I had to write two books, no way three. And originally, you know, I said, what do you mean writing a book? I'm not an author. What am I supposed to write about? And the spirit world just kept telling me when the time is right, we will tell you. And there were times when I thought I had lost my mind because the message would just be, oh, the time is right, we're gonna tell you. And then all of a sudden, there it is. And they said, no, the book's gonna be called Med School After Menopause because it's to inspire other people to transform their life. It's never too late to change. But it's also a subtitle of the journey on my soul. So it is to show other people, we all have a journey. In this lifetime the journey of everybody's soul right we all are on our unique journeys but how can we make the best of that so the book is really about it is my own journey so i share a lot of stories from my life and how those my perception of how who we are and how we fit into this world changed from my near-death experiences and how i started tuning in to mediumship and psychic abilities what does that look like? How can we all become more psychic and intuitive? Because everybody is the psychic and an intuitive, because we are spiritual human beings, we are creatures that live here in the earth plane, having a spiritual experience. But we are often, you know, not developing these talents that we all have. And of course, some people are going to have more talents, everybody's not going to be a working medium. But everybody has an ability, I think, to connect with the spirit world for their own benefit and for their own healing and for their own journey. So I wrote the book um, to help other people develop that intuitive and psychic ability uh, and also to change the way they perceive the world so that they would have a better um, understanding of who they are and how they fit into this world. Because we all see the world from our own, so to speak, uh, rose-colored glasses Right, it's how we came in. It's the, the experience that we had during childhood and how we were trained, and our DNA and our ancestral lineage. Uh, that's all combined to how we see the world. Yeah. So I'm trying to take people through that journey in my book, and and there's little messages at the end of each book, uh, each oh, chapter. I that that was... I
0: absolutely love that. I went for every yeah. single one of those messages, and the, my favorite chapter that I mentioned before is your chapter about a woman's body image.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know a woman. There's no woman I know that doesn't have a problem with her body image. So you call that the journey of self-love. So please share with us what you share in your book mm-hmm. about accepting the body we've been given and not mm-hmm. being judgmental, not only of other people's bodies, but our own bodies.
1: Yeah. And I think that's the hardest is the is the self-love for people. And I often have people uh, do affirmations. I say, go stand in front of your mirror. And tell yourself that you are perfect. I love myself. You are gorgeous. You are perfect just the way you are. And what do you say
0: if they say to you, that's not true. I have this, I have that.
1: Right. And it's very difficult for some people if they're yes. not used to doing that. It's it's actually a learning curve involved in and in being able to be kind to yourself. And that's something that we pick up early on. And it's, it's part of that is, you know, ancestral and uh, how we view ourselves, because it starts early, early in childhood when you're just in the crib, that subconscious mind and those tapes that keep playing in your head as you go through life.
0: So what you're saying is that a lot, of, a lot of our self-criticism comes from our ancestral, what's been passed down to us with mm-hmm. those perceptions. Where we really have to change yeah. the way we process and talk mm-hmm. to ourselves. Yeah. And the way even we talk to ourselves when we see someone else. Mm-hmm. Right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, we, you know, it repeats through the generations. So um, many times your own mother had the exact same problem you're experiencing she also did not think that she was perfect and beautiful and that her body was great. You know, and my ear was always sticking out. I talk about it in the book on my left ear and I used to tape it when I was, you know, 11 or 12, cause it would stick it. I would have long hair and my little ear would stick out and I begged my dad for surgery. And my dad was not, he was a general practitioner and he was not fond of having any kind of elective surgery like that because he he would always tell me stories of how things would go wrong. So I heard every story, you know, how, somebody was just gonna have this little, you know, nail removed, and then, you know, died because of the infection or something. So I was very aware of that. And so he said, your ear is, you know, perfect. My mom told me, you know, you were made this way, you're perfect. But it took me, you know, until my 40s or 50s to accept my ear. And I never wanted to have short hair, because my ear is going to stick out. I was very aware of it. And it took me a lot of time, most of my or at least half my life to just heal my little ear. And then I dealt with being anorexic, you know, in my 40s and uh, being that, you know, young uh, looking, it's kind of like the last hurrah, my kids are now older, and I'm still a young and attractive woman. And, you know, every time I looked in the mirror, if I lose one more pound, I'll look even better. And it's, it's very easy to get trapped into that, instead of saying, I'm perfect the way I am. I don't really care what other people say or the media says. It's, it's not, it comes from that self-love and self-acceptance. Mm-hmm. So that's where we really have to start. So
0: I love that. I think that's such an mm-hmm. important chapter for everyone to read. And the another thing that you talk about is ancestral healing and how it relates to our daily lives, which you just touched on. Mm-hmm. And I think you have a new release on Hemisync. Would you like to tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so I just produced uh, four tracks. Uh, with HemiSync. um, You can just go to HemiSync.com. And it is about Dr. Lottie
0: Malenton. Yeah, uh, yeah, you
1: just look up ancestral healing. I'm the only one who has made ancestral healing uh, on HemiSync. And there's also a podcast interview of me uh, talking about it with HemiSync. But it was just released uh, July 20th, And there's four tracks to this. And it's all about healing your ancestral mother wound. And that, that ancestral mother wound can show up uh, in many different ways in your life. So are you having relationship problems? Are you having uh, uh, panic attacks? Are you having f- fears of something? Are you, um, you know, are you, any, any kind of problem really can be related back to an ancestral mother wound. And so that ancestral mother wound is one way that we have um, taken on uh, issues that our ancestors had. And it's a um, combination sometimes of the way we were raised, the way we, um, we, the way we saw the world when we were just in the crib and what we learned at that early age combined with, well, your mother, if she wasn't able to nurture you, she was probably also not nurtured herself. So if she wasn't nurtured herself, then how could she nurture you? She didn't know how to deal with you because she didn't have that experience as a child and she wasn't cared for it as a child. And so it's it's ancestral because it goes back in time and it started out. I started working with uh, ancestral healing when I worked as a medium because I would have I had three or four readings working as a medium where it would show me uh, ancestral trauma passed down in the generation. So I would see the grandmother being uh, physically abused and I would see the 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 client's mother as one of the children being physically abused by the father. And then I would see, um, you know, that mother marrying the client's father who was also physically abusive and then abused my client. And I would say, this is what I'm seeing. Is this correct? And the client would say, yes. So I have two
0: questions to this. So if you've got Uh ancestral and two questions, and and let me get them both out and then you can answer them. So is there also an issue with the ancestral healing on the father's line? Mm -hmm. And also, um, all right. So someone comes to you and they have these issues mm-hmm. that came really from their ancestral, and you're thinking mm-hmm. that. Um, how do you help them to he- to accept, to acknowledge that, and help them to heal with that?
1: Right. So you have to. Uh, so in these uh, hemi sync that I released, it's four tracks. So the first track is uh, laying the foundation and making people aware. So I tell them to sit back and listen. Uh, awareness, you know, where where they're having problem in their life. And then we trace, and I teach them how to trace their ancestral mother wound. And then we do a shamanic journey and uh, to bring things to the surface. And then we create healing in the last track. So, and it's similar when I work with people, it's uh, finding out where it's coming from. So depending on, so this release that I did with Hemisync is the ancestral mother wound, but there are also other, way, other ways that we um, inherit ancestral trauma. And we know from science that ancestral trauma is passed down on the DNA. So if your grandfather That's was a in the thing, world.
0: Really, really. So even though mm-hmm. genetically, grandpa is grandpa, but if he suffered, that goes into his DNA and then gets transferred to you when he gives birth to your father or your mother. And then yeah. you, wow.
1: Yeah. So if you, they did studies uh, on Holocaust survivors and that survived the Holocaust, and they have now traced it down to the grandchildren. So, if for example, if the grandfather, let's say, was in the World War II, and every time the flying, the you know, the airplanes would come and they were gonna drop the bombs, the air, the sirens went off, and everybody has to take cover. And every time this happened, grandpa thought, This is the day I'm gonna die, right? The sirens are going off, I'm not gonna make it. And he survives. But now his granddaughter every time she hears a siren, she has a panic attack, Oh, right? But she has never had any trauma around hearing sirens herself. So, you know, it's coming from somewhere else. And then when you look at the the lineage, so in this case, it would be coming from the grandfather and she is reliving that. And that was, you know, passed down literally on the DNA. So it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating.
0: That is really amazing. And we're all for healing here. So everyone, I hope that you will go see Lottie and get that taken care of. So tell me, um, you have your center for integrative medicine in Phoenix. So tell us about the services that are available there. And I know you do telemedicine appointments Mm -hmm. and you are very busy actively blending spirituality with Western medicine. So how does that work? Someone comes in with a malady and where do you go with all of that?
1: You mean the integration of the medical intuitive? Yeah. yeah. So I, I work as a physician in my clinic and my medical license. And then I work in my spiritual business, you know, doing uh, medical intuitive readings, ancestral healing. You do all of that in,
0: in your center. It, right. You know,
1: so I the, the spiritual work is done all on Zoom online. And so I do, you know, do medical intuitive readings and that come, you know, came from working in a clinic setting because I would just know what's wrong with people before they even, you know, started talking and that still happens. I just see somebody and the information starts coming in. So in the medical clinic, but it's not like you can stop it either. Right. So even if I work as a doctor, I get messages, but if it's, if it's not a spiritual person, I might just say why don't we do some lab work? Cause you haven't had lab work done in a long time, or why don't we do this ultrasound? Right. Cause I might be hearing a message that, that something is wrong. And so I guide them that way, but I'm still practicing medicine under my license because you have to make sure you, everything <laughs> is charted. you got to have a diagnosis code, right? It's gotta be, it, it's a system. So, so working as a physician, I work a lot with, I work a lot with women, um, any kind of menstrual problems, PCOS, endometriosis, anything like that, uh, hormones, menopause. I work with bioidentical hormones. I have postgraduate uh, education in uh, hormones. I also have um, postgraduate training in mold, so I'm a mold literate certified physician, and there's not many of those.
0: Wow, and, and there are a lot of things that come from mold, and they're very sneaky. I know that there's a lot yeah. of things, a lot of issues. Oh, it's
1: so sneaky. It's you know, it's when you hear the People have fallen through the cracks. They typically, it's either Lyme disease or mold exposure. And that mold exposure could have happened 10 years ago or, you know, 20 years ago. They had, they lived a, in a dorm in college that, you know, was a moldy bathrooms. And it's amazing. That mold is just sort of recirculates in your body because you have to... Um, you have to bind it with certain things. You have to eat pharmaceuticals or a combination of uh, nutritional supplements and herbal supplements and pharmaceuticals in order to bind those mold um, mycotoxins in the body and bring them out. So I do a lot of, of that. I do a, a lot of thyroid disease, uh, food allergies, uh, digestive issues, you know, all the, a lot of things that a lot of people
0: have. <laughs> yeah. I guess. Now, do you mostly specialize in women? Or are you do. Doing- men and children also
1: um i don't uh, i i don't work with children anymore i did uh, after i just graduated but now i just work with adults <laughs> cuz i'd work so much on both telemed- sexes
0: both men mm-hmm. and women right so now my favorite thing that you say and you've said a lot of wonderful things is that we must heal ourselves and our problems in life to become whole what Lottie does it mean to become whole and what should people do and why should they want to become whole? Why should they take, why should they be conscious of healing their issues in this lifetime while we breathe in and out before we go to the other side?
1: Well, the way I look at it is I'm, I am going to resolve all my issues in this life because I don't want to repeat my issues in the next life. So whatever I don't, resolve in this life, right? It's just going to come back. So I'm putting my seeds in my bag at the end of my life. This is or all my sticky notes, right? So I wrote all these sticky notes before I incarnated. And I said, I'm going to have, you know, this problem and this problem and this problem. And I put all these sticky notes on me. And then I incarnate it. And every time I have a problem, I peel off that sticky note and I get rid of it. So I've, I don't want to go to the other side at the end of my life and still have, you know, 40 sticky notes left. I'm going right, to right, right. peel them all off in this life because my next life, is going to be great. I'm going to have resolved all these issues, right? And so right. it's the it's the soul growth of, you know, when, when you resolve your issues and you find healing for them, you're able to live your life to your fullest potential, uh, the way you were supposed to live, but you have to Take that step to create healing for yourself in order to completely open your your heart, uh, your mind, your spirit, your soul uh, to the universe. you know as long as you're going through all these problems, you're just stuck in this in this rut, in this energetic loop and you're just repeating things and that's ancestral too. you just keep repeating things right. because they have to be resolved. It's the restoration of the equilibrium of the universe itself. So you have to restore that energy so to its uh, homeostasis or um, equilibrium. So anything that's not healed, so ancestral healing is all the all the trauma that was brushed under the carpet, all the actions, the reactions, and interactions of your ancestors that was just swept under the carpet. You know, Uncle Billy that we don't talk about at Christmas dinner. Oh, but he's inside of you. He's right. right. Yeah. So, but that's going to be repeated because he did something bad. So one of the kids is definitely carrying that problem, right? But it's all those things. And and we carry that, but we, we don't see it because we're so busy. And then we wonder, why am I in my third relationship? Why am I always attracting the wrong person? Well, because you're ancestral, You you have to, you're in that loop. And so you have to create healing. And it's not until you become aware of that and even, Sometimes I work with people that say, I can't, you know, my family was like a leave it to beaver and everything was perfect. And then you start talking and they, you know, they realize that, oh, everything wasn't away
0: a few layers. There you go. Right. right. And they
1: have a hard time stepping into themselves. I'm having a hard time, you know, stepping into myself and I really want this job and I know I'm qualified, but I never get the jobs I, I apply for breaking the bond with a mother. It goes back to that early crib phase and it's un- subconscious and you can't break out of that. You need help to uh, untangle that, those ancestral wounds so that you can then uh, live okay. your life. Because your when you best.
0: release them and you let go of them, then they don't okay. weigh you down and they translate themselves into all your other relationships and all your other issues. <laughs> yeah. Oh my, gosh, right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Right. Oh, my gosh. Now that everyone who's listening to this podcast would like to connect with you and your Center for Integrative Medicine in Phoenix, how can they connect with you, Dottie? What's the best way to get a hold of you?
1: Yep. Uh, So there's two websites. There is Lottie, D-R-L-O-T-T-E dot com. And that has uh, mostly my medical information and how I work, you know, what kind of uh, services I provide. And then that website is connected to my other website, which is my spiritual website. And that's called divine And that is where people can sign up for a session with me. They can book a medical intuitive appointment, ancestral healing, uh, mediumship or psychic readings and uh, things like that. And that's on that website. And that's you just go and you find a time and you just can book a session online.
0: Right, so I'll bet sometimes, I'll I would be willing to bet that there are times that someone has a medical intuitive reading with you, and the next thing you know, you're treating them, and you're as you're in your doc with your doctor hat on. For, that uh, it, yeah, it does for
1: happen for sure. sometimes. It does happen sometimes, and sometimes it's uh, I mean, it's a lot of a lot of times it's people. Um, it's for anything from A to Z, really. But many times the people fall through the cracks of the regular Western medical system, and somehow they're guided to a medical intuitive session and invariably, you know, we get guided It's divine guidance. And I will be the one person that I know of that very rare condition. And I'll say, wow, do you have these symptoms? Because I'm hearing this disease. And it's very uncommon. And it tends to fall through the cracks. We don't have a good way of testing for it. But this is what I think you have. And then invariably, you know, that's what it that's is. It. And it's, it's fascinating. And it's, I feel like, um, People are guided to the people that they're supposed to work with. It's that little, you know, tap on the shoulder or the whisper in the ear that says that person, that person can help you. Right.
0: Yep. Yep. I um, it's wonderful. You're helping so many people. So what is the Lottie tip for finding joy in life?
1: The Lottie tip for finding joy in life is to not worry so much about anybody else but just you know um, that self-love knowing that you are unique and special just the way you are and you don't have to change or impress anybody else you just have to be yourself
0: and be happy with who yourself is who you Mm -hmm. are that's beautiful Mm -hmm. Lottie I really appreciate the insights you share at the end of each chapter in your wonderful memoir med school after menopause, that provides so many important life lessons for its readers. And I also deeply appreciate how your story helps us to understand that life is eternal and does not end with the death of the physical body. Ma'am, you are an inspiration and a true healer, role modeling that it is never too late to transform one's life path. Mm Thank you for sharing your remarkable story with all of us. And I thank you from my heart for this incredibly enlightening and fascinating interview today. And here's a loving reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and especially on YouTube like subscribe hit notify to make sure you'll get the inspiring new interviews like this one with dr lottie coming your way thank you so much as i like to say to be continued many blessings and bye for now